This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Monty Cook, designer of the Invisible Sun RPG. We are here to sing one spell. With transmissions from the Invisible Sun, I will profess the coming dayspring, with pre-orders for the Invisible Sun RPG now available. Join us on the Path of Suns and we may uncover a secret or two. In Transmissions from the Invisible Sun, we discuss information coming from Monty Cook Games about the game outside the regular design diaries. Today, we're honored to be talking with Monty Cook, the designer of the Invisible Sun RPG. I'm Dave. Uh, we didn't do our normal intro, and Scott's here too. Say hi, Scott. Hello. So we're both here, and we are also joined by Monty Cook. Hey, guys. Hey, Monty. Oh, it is super exciting to have you on uh, the show with us. This is really great. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. So, Scott and I have put together a, a few questions that we wanted to sit down and talk to you about, so I think we're just going to roll into uh, some of those, unless you wanted to uh, open up with uh, a little bit of intro about Invisible Sun and where things are at right now. We are very much in the frantic last stages of putting together the, the Black Cube, which uh, mostly means things like last-minute editing, proofreading, making sure all the many, many pieces that are going in this box are, you know, finished and together and off to the printer. And it's a lot of work, and that's because there's a lot of content in this. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, I feel like everything that, that I work on practically, you know, the story is right at the end. You're just like, I don't know, are we going to make it? And, you know, we'll almost always do. But it, it gets stressful. Yeah, I, I can I could believe that. It sounds like the the design work on this is completed, and you're just doing finishing touches at this point. Yes, I uh, you know I would say the design work is like ninety nine percent completed. But it's because I like to come in right at the end and put in a couple of finishing touches. And you know, uh, if you're familiar with MCG products at all, you know that we have these these columns on the margins where we put in page references and additional notes and everything. And we call those callouts. And uh, Invisible Sun is set up differently than that, but it has, it has an aspect to that as well, where we can kind of go in and stick in the last few little interesting things or reminders or, or things like that. So I, I've got some of that to do. There's a few things left, like in some of the handouts, things like that, that need doing. But that's kind of fun. Cool. So it's set up different in the sense that it's coming with four books, or just it's different? Um, well, right. It is four books, which means that it's, there are four books, but it isn't book one, book two, etc. Um, the books mm-hmm. are meant each uh, are topic-based, and so each... One is sort of meant to be a standalone book in that, like, you don't have to have read The Path before you read The Gate or something like that. 
So there's a lot of things in the college that kind of help manage that as well as refer you not only to other parts of that book, but to the other three books. And, you know, that's a whole well uh, web of, of self-referencing that can be really complicated sometimes. But um, that's, you know, that's a big part of it. But there's also, you know, just kind of the interesting little sidebar-like notes that we like to put in. One of the things that's different about Invisible Sun from some of the other stuff that we've done is that while there is a game mastering section, what I've done is I've taken discussions about game mastering specific sections and put and I put that information in a special it'll be blocked off as a special page in that section. So uh, in the section on you know heart. It will. There will be a game mastering hearts page that will be separate from from everything else. We haven't really done anything like that before. You know, I've kind of always just crammed that all into the game mastering section. But here it'll be right there along with the rest of the material. So it'll have things for the game master specific to the the heart then. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. How how best to you know use heart in the game? How best to make heart a significant factor uh, and things like that. That kind of lines up with one of the questions that we had put together here, to me at least. And from the updates that we've been reading uh, and from what I understand about Invisible Sun, it seems like the players are going to have a lot more control over where their characters and where the story is going to go. So is, is... there going to be something in those GM sections that kind of addresses that? Because that's going to be a real big shift for, you know, GMs and players who are coming from, you know, more traditional games like uh, D&D and even Numenera, where a lot of that control has been in the GM's hands. I, I completely agree um, that there is, like I said, there is a game mastering section. And I would say that that is probably the predominant part of it. Is, is just sort of explaining how best to handle that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting game to run because it is different from, you know, D&D, Pathfinder, you know, more traditional role-playing games in that way. Um, but it, there are games where uh, the players have a lot of narrative control and it comes through via mechanics you know there are games where the players can kind of make changes to the storyline and you know have an npc do something that they want them to do or something like that and invisible sun doesn't really do it that way invisible sun makes it so that with the character arcs that each character has um the characters are really kind of driving the plot from the get-go not the sort of reactive minutia but but the proactive big picture right and so uh the in in a specific scene once the scene starts the game master has a pretty traditional role in that you know game master is still controlling the npcs and and kind Mm -hmm. of managing the action and everything but they probably got to that scene because of the players, not because of some plot hook that the game master sort of dangled in front of them to get them there. So 
it, it, you know, preparing for this game is very interesting because it's not one about motivation or, or storyline, but it's about, um, being ready to react to when the players want to do whatever it is that they're going to do. Um, and it means like having lots of interesting NPCs sort of at the ready, right? Because they're going to go talk to somebody about something. They're going to go confront some antagonist about something. And you've got to be sort of ready for that. But they're going to get there on their own. That's that's the really big difference here. Because they're motivated by things that are driving them in the same way that a character in a, in a novel or a movie is sort of motivated on their own to go do what is they're going to, whatever it is they're going to do. So characters tend to be acting more than just reacting. Very, very much so. Yeah. And this uh, connects to one of the questions we had uh, in the uh, current pre-order. One of the elements people can uh, order, as I understand it, is the directed campaign. Yes. I was wondering how a directed campaign is structured uh, in a game that is so driven by, at least at the macro scale, uh, the choices that players make in shaping the campaign. Uh, so it's not just one voice, but a chorus of, of, all, of everybody. Right. So what the directed campaign ends up being then is a lot of tools, kind of the, the prep that I was talking about that game masters need to have at the ready the directed campaign kind of does all of that for you. So you've you've got a bunch of, of interesting NPCs ready to kind of deal with whatever the player characters want to go off and deal with. And, you know, it, it would be incorrect also to say that, that the Game Master doesn't ever also sort of insert twists or, or you know, a, a surprise plotline or something as well. And so the directed campaign will have a few options for that as well. And that's that's where the directed campaign actually gets really interesting because if the game master kind of makes something known to the players and they aren't interested, right? If the if the game master starts telling them that that, you know, oh they're you know, they're sitting around the bar, they're sitting around zeros and and they're asking people about something and someone happens to drop a reference to some weird new location that has just sort of bubbled up out of the half worlds that exist in indigo the player characters might say oh that's cool let's let's go check that out or they might say oh you know we're busy with other things and that's an interesting point of divergence and so in the directed campaign that might be one of the key divergent points and that would be one of the questions that we would ask you you know if if that happened you're playing through the direct campaign in, you know, May. In June, we might ask you, did they did they go to that new location? If you say no, then you get a whole bunch of information about stuff still going on, perhaps in Saturnine. But if they say yes, then you get a bunch of different information. Um, and so that's this really interesting way in which the it can branch off in that way. But again, it's still entirely up to the players whether you took that branch or not. Hmm. Um, so the directed campaign, it, it runs for 12 months once you sign up for it. That's correct? Is that right? Right. That's right. Okay. And how much play are you expecting groups to go through in a given month? 
That's a great question. It's actually something that I'm kind of trying to figure out now. I'm I'm basing this on the campaign that I've been running and there have been there have been months where we have played only every other week and there have been lots of months where we played every week. Uh, so I have a pretty good feel for uh, the the flow and the timing of that. And what I'll probably do is air toward the the more playing more often. Mm-hmm. So you know, frankly, if your if your group only gets together once or twice a month and you go with the directed campaign, it might be way more than a year's worth of of material for you. You might end up having two two years. I, I don't I, I don't know if those numbers actually work out, but um, but that's kind of the general thing that we're looking at. So it's not something that you'd get left behind on if you were only meeting twice a month. No, I don't think so because it won't be. Uh, I don't think there'll be anything like what something that I don't do when I'm running Invisible Sun, and. And I'm going to encourage other people not to do it. Is I don't have things that have a really strong time-based element to them. And the reason that I, for that is that if you have if you put real time pressures on the characters, and and by this I mean like long term, if we don't get this done by the fifteenth of next month, we're all in big trouble. Kind of time pressure. I don't mean like we have to get this done in the next 10 minutes. Next 10 minutes is fine. Next month and a half or whatever is, is, is hard in Invisible Sun because you want to give people the room to do development mode. And those side scenes are going to happen in between your play sessions. And if you're playing sessions where you know every moment counts and you've got to get this thing done, then you're kind of saying, no, don't do any side scenes. And that takes away a lot of the fun and the sort of the valuable differences that Invisible Sun offers. Okay. In fact, it's, it's funny that uh, it's, it's something I've actually found I've had to kind of have my players unlearn a little bit. I think we are, for whatever reason, um, time pressure is something that gets used a lot in RPGs. And I think everyone always feels like, oh, well, you know, if we have to accomplish this goal, we have to do it as quickly as possible. And, you know, in Invisible Sun, it's like, no, you know, if you want to take some time off and go learn a few new spells and study some stuff in the library, and that's that's part of what Vizlay do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's going to be a big shift for my group, I think. Like, our, our pacing yeah. doesn't allow for a lot of downtime right now. Yeah, and, and the you mentioned uh, development mode. Uh, this seems is interesting uh, kind of innovation uh, that seems to draw in... Elements that are not—they're not—they're not entirely new to RPGs, uh, but they seem more drawn from almost cinematic storytelling right. than uh, traditional RPG storytelling. Uh, do you have any uh, advice on uh, people preparing for these styles uh, of uh, of uh, you know, GMing that include things like flashbacks through development mode, uh, side stories, uh, things that are usually the advice you give in a traditional game not to do, which is to focus on just one player uh, or to break the timeline. Um, but with development mode, it opens up those possibilities. I was wondering if you want to talk about why you chose to include that, what it, what it allows, uh, and if there's any particular inspiration or advice you have to prepare for that uh, approach to storytelling, uh, it, we'd love to hear it. 
So there are a number of different reasons for it. Um, I, you know, I, I also uh, am a fiction writer and I, I talk to a lot of fiction writers and I live with a fiction writer. And, you know, we talk about character arc in that way and character motivations. And when you get to an RPG, often character motivations are kind of, and they're, they're, they're kind of pushed to the side, right? Um, you know, if you're playing in a fantasy game and your dwarf really hates orcs and that's like your defining characteristic, but the adventure is all about going and taking down the evil necromancer, you just, you just kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to ignore this defining characteristic of my character and go just fight undead. I wanted to give people the opportunity to, to not do that. So many games kind of encourage you at the very beginning at character creation to go off and create your character and then create this backstory and give your character a personality and whatever, and then proceed to force you to kind of submerge that personality and ignore that backstory because got to go off and save the world from Cthulhu or whatever. And, and I wanted to create a different kind of game that, that said, okay, you've done all this work. Let's, let's make use of that. And development mode just kind of grew out of that because, because you're, you know, that you pointed out what you pointed out was exactly right. That this is the kind of thing that you, you never want to do in a traditional game uh, where you're sitting at the table, where you focus just on one character and what they want to do and how they want to follow up on some goal because everyone else is just sitting there. So you, this gives you the opportunity to say, okay, let's, let's focus on that thing that, that is so important to you. You know, whether it's finding your father who left you when you were young or, you know, building the monastery that you promised a deity that you would build in their honor or, you know, whatever it is, you can have those, those personal goals. Now, of course, where I think the magic happens, where I think the sweet spot for Invisible Sun is, is where that stuff happens in those side scenes in the development mode. And then something happens in them that suddenly brings in the whole rest of the group. And, and suddenly now we all have to get involved, you know, because you've been searching for your, your missing father and, you know, it turns out he's imprisoned in this weird tower, you know, located right on the very edge of the dark and it's full of demons and it's going to take everybody to go in there and see if we can rescue him. That's, that, that's really cool because now you've got one character that's very motivated, but you've got other characters are also... I mean, you know, it's not their father, but they're motivated much more so than if if it was, you know, just driven by some NPC who asked you to go do that for them. So we have something there where, you know, it comes out of development mode and comes back to the table. And that's really cool. I would say, you, you know, you asked how to prepare for that. You know, the, the, the crazy thing is, is... The things that I would ask or suggest that you do for, to prepare for that would be to like just watch some movies and you know read some fiction or or even better yet you know read a screen uh, like a like a screenwriting 
guide or a screenwriting book um, because it will talk about these things. And these things are the kinds of things that we've trained ourselves to ignore and only think about the group dynamic. And, and this gives you kind of the opportunity to stretch in different ways. Kind of going off of uh, tips and techniques, uh, I call, I, there's something that I've been trying to figure out uh, as we've been doing this podcast, and it's uh, surrealism. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, and it wasn't something I was super familiar with um, beforehand, uh, but surrealism seems to be very visual. Yeah. Like all the art and movies, like that seems to be where it's really focused. So, I mean, how do you bring such a visual medium to a tabletop RPG where a lot of what you're doing is just dialogue? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things obviously is a lot of description from the from the game master. Um, but it's an, it's interesting that, you know, once the players have been playing in your Invisible Sun game for a while and they've listened to you describe crazy looking buildings and weird people that live there and stuff like that, a lot of them, not everybody, but a lot of them will kind of really get into the flow of it and they will, they'll become a part of it um, and they'll want to become a bigger part of it. And so that's why, for example, it's really cool that in the game you can pretty easily just with just with some money and some time get to a point where your character also becomes very visually interesting also becomes really weird and surreal and and you can kind of imagine however you want and you know show up at the table with that with that description and and suddenly you know now we're not just listening to the game master talk about something weird, but we are talking about, you know, we're listening to one of the players talk about, well, I just had this magic done that allows, you know, it's granted me two extra arms and these arms can detach from my body and they can go off and do these things. And, you know, suddenly the, the it's not just the setting, but the players and the characters rather that are, that are surreal. And that's really fun. But, you know, to get there, um, I find that just like looking at a lot of science fiction and fantasy art, a lot of it, you know, you can look at actual surrealists, right? You can go and look at Dolly and, and, and that, and, that, and that's really cool. But the truth of it is, is that a lot of sci-fi and fantasy art is already pretty surreal. Um, we wouldn't normally ter- use that term, but, you know, once you've, once you've got a bunch of weird stuff going on that isn't what's literally going on in the book, but is more of a representation of this, you know, of a, like a science fiction book cover. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but, but then you look at that and you say, okay, I know that that's, you know, representing a number of different aspects of the book, a number of different themes and elements. But what if that was literal? That is a great way to get to the kind of surreal of, of Invisible Sun. Or like, you know, another thing that I will do is I'll look at, like, read some song lyrics or or poetry, which is filled with kind of this imagery that that isn't meant to be taken literally, but when you take it literally, it suddenly conjures up this really interesting visual that you can then bring to the table. So a lot of translating metaphor into literal into a literal sense that is i think the best 
the best trick for getting this across. Yeah. And before we move on from this, I I played a lot of Numenera, and Numenera is weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was initially you know reading up on Invisible Sun. I was having some difficulty trying to figure out what sets surrealism apart from the weirdness of Numenera. Like, can you can you explain that? Yeah, I, you know, it's a fine line, right? There's there are, are aspects to Numenera that you would almost certainly think of as surreal, and there are things that are invisible sun that are very sort of Numenera weird. And if you're going to create a Venn diagram, there's there's some decent crossover there. But where it breaks apart is that in Numenera, as weird as things get, on a meta level, we as players, we as game masters know that this stuff is being explained by science. Maybe that's super science, right? Maybe it's science we don't understand, but it's it's still science. There's a reality. There's a grounding to it, and the surrealism of Invisible Sun goes a step further than that and says there isn't a science behind this. It, it is one step weirder than that, right? You know, you you might in Numenera you might go into a building and that building might be a living organism, and it might be. You know, something that you can interact with or whatever. But you know on some level that that living organism that is also a structure has a biology, has a, you know, somebody, you know, has to eat something, right? It has to, you know, do all the things that a living creature does. And those are just things that you just wouldn't worry about in Invisible Sun. In, in, you would you know say well okay this building is just one big giant demon and at any point this demon might you know spread its wings and fly off with everyone that's inside it and and fly off to the red and you know who knows what will happen there and so you know you're you're not really thinking so much about questions like how but but you are interested in questions like why I mean, maybe that's kind of zeroing in on the real difference. It's not so important how things work, but it's more important of, of why they they happen. Because you can go too far, whether you're talking about Numenera's weird or Invisible Sun's reality. If you just go to just crazy town and nothing seems to have any rhyme or reason and the players are, are just sitting there listening to the Game Master go on about weird stuff that doesn't make any sense you 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 lose them right you suddenly nothing has meaning and and it's like well why are we why are we all here um so meaning is still very important uh, in fact maybe it's even more important right you're 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 more thinking about the significance of things you know and this ties in so closely with you know the occult upon which invisible sun is kind of built uh, where you know we've got things like numerology and symbology and everything where where actually everything has even more meaning than you think what chance do we have that there'll be an appendix in oh yeah there there absolutely is a a whole resources section of of stuff to read and and a little bit to watch but really it's mostly books not a few uh graphic novels too 
Alan Moore and Graham Morrison certainly uh, influenced Invisible Sun a lot. Yeah, those are both uh, graphic novels we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, based on your discussions at uh, at Gen Con. A very a, a yeah. good way to explore the surreal because it it brings together the visual uh, and the narrative elements. Yeah, I, if if there if you only could read one thing before. Uh, uh, understanding Invisible Sun, I would probably say it would be Alan Moore's Promethea. Oh, yes. Well, I'm going to have to pick that one up. I have not read it. Uh, let's change gears a little bit. Uh, I know we, have, we only have you for a limited time. In the Kickstarter, uh, one of the uh, elements that really brought the community together was a series of riddles and mysteries that you embedded into the uh, evolution of the Kickstarter yeah. Uh, without asking you to reveal anything, uh, what sort of what did you enjoy most, or what did you learn from uh, that experience of connecting the Kickstarter with a series of community-based puzzles? Well, you know uh, that was such a fun and interesting and eye-opening experience because um, it 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 showed me that you can create puzzles that are challenging to one person, but as soon as you suddenly, you know, crowdsource it, things get solved a lot faster than maybe you're even expecting. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's fun to watch. And, and I suspect that even, even though there won't be the kind of immediate group effort that there was like during the Kickstarter, uh, I don't think, with Invisible Sun, I think there there will at least be still some of that, right? People will probably start to say things like, you know, I found this weird symbol in the art on page 17. Um, does anybody know what that means? And someone else will say, oh, well, that probably is referring you to this other part in this other book. And and suddenly, you know, there, there will people will be working together. Um, it won't have the immediacy of a Kickstarter because obviously a Kickstarter is... is got that time pressure i guess that we were talking about just a little bit ago and the game doesn't have that but uh it, it'll be interesting to see i i learned a lot about the kinds of things that people when they're looking for things the kind of places that they look and there there were places that people were looking for hidden clues and meanings that we where we didn't put anything but now that I, you know, have seen them do that, I'm thinking, oh, well, this time we will. You know what I mean? <laughs> awesome. Do you have any uh, hints that you might want to drop for some of those remaining Kickstarter puzzles that are still out there? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, for me, that's part of the fun. Um, and it's always been the assumption that there would probably be some of these things that would just sort of never get solved. But the nice thing is, is that only to a limited extent are they interconnected. So we can have some that just kind of remain mysteries and it doesn't necessarily keep us from uncovering um, other ones. I, you know, when I'm setting up something like that, you know, a puzzle that it leads to the clue of another puzzle and, and so forth and so on, I will try to make it so that they get progressively harder. So you don't hit the really hard one first and then you never get to see the next one. Yeah, but I but I also I, I don't like to give clues. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> no, that's fine. I just had to ask. Um, on a on a more kind of uh, you know, gritty detailed level, I was curious about the process of creating some of the symbols for the suns uh, or the art for the sooth deck. Did you have a process you used to sort of imagine uh, e- e- you know either of those elements uh, that might inspire uh, Invisible Sun uh, players and game masters for their own creations? Well, so the sooth deck obviously uh, is. Owes a lot to the to tarot. I uh, happen to own about two two dozen or so different tarot decks myself. Um, I find them to be when they're when they're done well. I find them to be really intriguing and and kind of interesting creative prompts and and just fun. So that's. That's where a lot of that came from, you know, in designing the Sooth deck and figuring out all the meanings to all of the cards and and then trying to embed those meanings in the images. Uh, I, I looked very, very closely at a lot of a, a lot of different divination uh, mechanisms, but really focused, I would say, like 90 percent of it on tarot. And what I mean by that is. It tarot taught me the kinds of things you need in a divination system, right? That, that, like, I mean, to use a very, very basic, simple thing, right? You need something that indicates something good coming in the future, something bad coming in the future, you know, something happening to someone close to you, someone happen, you know, something happening to a stranger, and so you know, there's sort of this big chart of possible meanings and 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 so attaching just kind of making a list of all the meanings that you kind of need to have in a divinatory system and then sort of retroactively pushing them into a 60 card deck uh was was a a really fun challenge i personally don't have any occult beliefs this is not like Monty's secret philosophy of life or anything. I, I don't believe in, I certainly don't believe in anything in Invisible Sun, but I don't believe in, in the real world occult either. You know, so I, I say that because I'm afraid that someone will think that I'm I'm being too reductivist about something that actually has real meaning to people. And I, and I don't want to be, I want to be respectful in that way. But it is it is an interesting exercise to figure that out. And, and figure out how to go about that. And then what we did was we just we, so there in this in the sooth deck there are four card families. We call them families rather than suits. And each family is the artist is a it's a it's a different artist. So we had an overall visual style that we wanted to go for. But each fam each card family has its own unique look because it has a different artist and. I was really happy with the way it worked out. I worked out with uh, Bear Whiter, our art director, and, and I think that came out really great. The symbols in the Path of Suns were created almost entirely by uh, one artist. Oh, and unfortunately, my, my mind has just gone blank on his name. He's great. It'll come to me before the end of the podcast. And basically, you know, we sort of just tasked him with create some symbols that that aren't symbols that already exist and which is harder than you might think because there's a lot of uh symbols in the world and so but he, he came up with these beautiful things each one of them has uh some meaning 
you know, we, we tasked him with, with some specific things. And so each symbol does have some meaning hidden within it. Um, usually that is number based because all of the sons uh, have an, actually two different numbers that go with them, depending on whether you're talking about the path of sons or the night side path. And uh, so he, he did a great job of incorporating all of that. And then a lot of that kind of was was given the finishing touches again by our art director Bear Whiter. Yeah, the uh, the sooth deck images that we've seen are fantastic. Like it looks really good, and I'm really looking forward to uh, being able to get my hands on one at Gen Con. Yeah, I'm super super happy with it, and the cards themselves are are really gorgeous. And you know, I'm happy. I'm, I'm so happy with so many of the choices that we made about. Having the cards be round, for example, which was really important to me at the beginning. I didn't think it was necessarily going to be very viable. Um, I will say that they're, they are a challenge to shuffle. But uh, other than that, I, I think they're really great. Um, and they, the images are just amazing. And um, Bear did this great job with the borders and the information that's kind of encoded in the symbols around it. And I'm really, really happy. I like to think that there's a button machine that got pulled out of the uh, dustbin <laughs> just for this process. Or maybe the, you've re recovered the technology of Pogs. <laughs> That's it. That's my whole goal is just to bring Pogs back. And, oh, man, Pogs are back. And with <laughs> and in ALF form, I believe. Is the, uh, <laughs> That's the, yeah, that is the correct follow-up. Yeah. Well, we're getting pretty close to the end uh, of our time. Uh, is there anything else, uh, uh, Dave, that you want to ask? Or uh, we can turn it over to Monty for, for uh, final comments? Uh, I think we should turn it over to Monty. Um, you know, I wanted to, to make sure everyone knew that um, while the Kickstarter obviously is over, we've uh, made Invisible Sun available for pre-orders. You can get a black cube. You can get the directed campaign, you can get a Vizlay kit, and you can get a separate Sooth deck. And if you pre-order the Black Cube now, um, you get an additional Sooth deck for free. And the, cool, the reason that that's cool is because um, since the Sooth, Sooth deck is done, that'll be shipping out early. So even though the game itself won't come out until the beginning of the year, you'll, you'll see Sooth decks earlier than that. And they're gorgeous. One thing that hasn't been described as much that you just talked about is, is the Vizlay kit. Could you elaborate a little bit on what comes in that and what role it plays? Sure. Um, so what the Vizlay kit is, so the Black Cube, you know, it's full of stuff. It's full of all the things you need to play the game. But the Vizlay kit has sort of all the important player-facing stuff. Invisible Sun, the character sheets, we actually call them character tomes um, because they're, they're four pages long, one, one large sheet of paper folded. Um, and then there's some additional things to help you manage your, your stat pools and things like that. And, uh, you know, the Vance has their own sort of special sheet that uh, allows them to manage the spells that they have prepared. And the uh, Weaver has their own special sheet that allows them to manage the, uh, the threads, the aggregates that they have to weave together. And so, there's all this stuff that's meant to be sort of facing the player, and all of that goes into a Vizlay kit. And, uh, you know, and plus, you know, dice and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of different things. And it's nice because 
you know, our intention was, was that, you know, if you have a gaming group, there's so many times we, we sort of all go out and we all buy the rule book for the game that we're playing and, and Invisible Sun, there's no need for that. Um, the, the black cube, you, know, you don't need more than one per group, but maybe you want a few more of these, maybe you want some more dice, maybe you want some more of these handouts you know they're very useful. Maybe you want some more of the of the counters that help you manage your your stat pools and everything. Um, plus, you just want a piece of it of your own as an individual player. And maybe the game master has the black cube itself. And anyway, the Vizlay kit just is that is that thing, which is, is the stuff that you need as a player to play, so that you don't have to go and drop all the money just to get uh, all the others. Excellent. And uh, Monty, where should people go if they want to find out more about you or, or the Invisible Sun RPG? MontyCookGames.com. You can also go to InvisibleSunRPG.com, but either one. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me at drscottrobinson on Twitter. And you can find me at tex underscore red on Twitter. So leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find the show. Uh, or tell a friend about the show, and that would be another great way to help us out. Thanks. <laughs>